Well, good morning. It is good to be gathering in this way again and to be able to worship together and to commune together with our Savior and to be looking into his word and to be uh, nourished and encouraged and refreshed by what the word has to say to us uh, this Sunday morning. We're continuing in our series on Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're looking at a text in Matthew chapter 11, which deals with John the Baptist. And one of the realities of the Christian faith, one of the great doctrines, maybe the doctrine uh, of the Christian faith, certainly uh, one of the top three, is that we are justified by faith alone, that we come to a saving relationship with God through faith. Problem that virtually every Christian encounters with that doctrine and with the glorious reality of that, that it is our faith and our trusting God and not our works that saves us, is what happens if that faith is shaken? How does God respond to people whose belief is shattered? How does Jesus respond to people whose faith does not seem solid? If we're saved by faith, how much faith is required? And what does God do when his people doubt? This is a problem that every Christian deals with eventually. What do we do with doubt? If we're beset with doubt, knowing that our salvation is by faith, then what hope do we have? And that's what this text speaks to in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. It has to do with John the Baptist. And it has to do with his doubt. And we get to see in this text how Jesus responds to doubting John. Let's pray before we look into his word. Father God, we thank you that you provide your word to us, that we have opportunity to learn and to be encouraged and to be sharpened and to know your character, know who you are and know who we are in relationship to you and understand the significance of your covenant and of your agreement with us that we would be saved by faith. And so, Father, as we look into the text today, I just pray for all of us, for our hearts, for those that wherever they are on the spectrum of believing, that the Holy Spirit would uh, give to each of us the thing that we need to hear today, and that we would be lifted up, and that we would be able to praise you and worship you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read the text in Matthew 11. Uh, it's verses 1 to 15. And uh, so you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them with you. And uh, I'll also have it on the screen for you. Uh, but let's just listen to God's word as he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent words by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So we see in this text here that primarily Jesus, or it starts with and is going to deal with the doubt of John the Baptist. It says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So the situation that we have here is, is actually pretty amazing. John the Baptist, this is the John, the Baptist, is in prison at the hands of Herod, the Jewish governor under Roman authority at this time. And John has been faithfully proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. John has been faithfully pointing to Jesus. He's been sharing the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, his moment has arrived. This is literally what he was born for. Jesus says in verse 10 that John is the very one who the prophet Malachi prophesied of 400 years earlier, where he said, I will send my messenger who will prepare your way before you. So this is John's moment. No one is greater than John the Baptist. But instead of the Messiah that he announces ushering in victory for Israel or even victory for his most loyal followers and disciples, John finds himself in prison because he confronted Herod over the sin of taking his brother's wife, who's named Herodias, just to confuse things a little bit. And so King Herod took the wife of his brother uh, in a sinful fashion and John the Baptist confronted Herod over this sin of his, and Herod didn't like that, threw John in prison, but he was afraid to kill John uh, because he knew how popular he was. And so, and he was also intrigued, we learn later, by the things that John spoke. And so Herod would often visit John in prison and listen to him, and uh, was curious about the teaching that John had about the Messiah. So we have this situation where John is faithfully doing everything that he was literally born for, and he ends up in prison. So now imagine John's faith in Jesus at this moment in time. The Messiah that he has proclaimed has not ushered in victory. He cannot seem to even protect his most loyal followers. John is starting to doubt Jesus. He's really starting to doubt if Jesus is the one. Maybe he proclaimed the wrong Messiah. Maybe he was supposed to wait for another. Can we relate to that? I mean, at some point in our lives, we're introduced to Jesus. Maybe we grew up with Jesus the same way that John did, literally a cousin, uh, close to Jesus, grew up with him in our family. We never doubted a relationship with Jesus was ours. We never doubted Jesus was anything except the person that we knew growing up. We trusted Jesus would always be there, always have our back. But then something happens in our life, like with John, something unexpected, something tragic, not the plan that we thought Jesus had for us, and our faith wavers, and we begin to doubt. Is 
Jesus really who we thought he was? And we think, wait a minute, should I be looking somewhere else? Should I be looking somewhere else in my life for what I thought I would receive from Christ? And that's exactly what John is asking. And that question shakes us. We don't want to gloss over that at all because we know that we are saved by faith, by trusting Jesus. So then what does it mean if we stop trusting? What does it mean if our faith begins to waver? So let's consider from this situation that John is in how Jesus responds to doubters, because that's what we need to know, right? We need to know as believers, how does Jesus respond to people who doubt? What does Jesus do with us poor, weak doubters? I mean, if if John the Baptist can doubt in Jesus, then surely we can doubt as well, and we do doubt. The greatest man ever born, the greatest prophet, more than a prophet, Jesus says. That means John outranks Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, King David, Solomon, you name it. Jesus says this man is the greatest. And that same man is sitting in a prison of doubt. What Christian hasn't been there? And so we need to know, how does Jesus respond to doubters? First, Jesus wants to reassure John of the historical, factual evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. We see first how Jesus answers the disciples that John sent. He says, go and tell John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And we've considered these works of Jesus many times and how they relate to his reality as the Messiah. And so I'm not going to dwell on this part of his response today, but let's just acknowledge that Jesus doesn't simply say, tell John just to double down on his blind faith. I said I'm Jesus, he prophesied that I'm Jesus, that's all he gets, you know, he better buck up that faith of his. That's not how Jesus responds. No, Jesus says, tell John that he can look at my works. He can trust the witness of what I've done. He should do as the psalm writers do and remember the work of God and put their hope in what God has done and in what God is doing. Jesus doesn't ask us for blind faith. He has worked in your life countless times before you even know him. And you as a believer can look back and remember all the places where you know Jesus has been at work in your life. And you can listen to the testimony of others who have seen Jesus work. But again, that's not the main point that I want to get to in the text today. We see that Jesus gives John that hope that it's not just blind faith. I've come and I've done what I've said I'm going to do. And you've witnessed the things. And there are witnesses and testimonies of what I've done. And we still have those today. But we want to see how Jesus treats doubters like John, not just the evidence that he gives them. It says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So after sending John's disciples back to him, saying, tell John this, Jesus starts to talk about John to the crowds around him. And Jesus starts to defend him and to exonerate him. You can imagine the crowds having heard John call them to repentance over the last several months and maybe even almost a year, perhaps a little longer. And John rebuked them. And and John preached so forcefully about Jesus the Messiah. And now the same crowds hear that he is starting to doubt. You can imagine what they are thinking and saying. Where's your faith now, John? 
You know, where's all the big sermons that you were preaching a few months ago? Big talk, but not so bold now, right? But Jesus will have none of that from them. Jesus jumps in immediately to the defense of his struggling servant. He says, I saw all of you out in the wilderness. I saw you at my baptism. The crowds of you marching out into the desert to see John preach and to hear him. Did you go into the wilderness to see a wavering reed blowing in the wind? Did you see, did you go to see a reed that was shaking and bending? And the question, of course, is rhetorical. No, you went out into the wilderness to hear John because you knew he was speaking truth. You went to see an oak that was unbending, that would not bow even before Herod. You know John does not waver. He is not blowing here and there like a reed in the wind. That is not who you saw. And then Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So he goes on and he says, or did you go out to see a soft man? John was anything but soft. He wore camel hair and he ate locusts and he lived in the desert. Jesus says, John wasn't some royal advisor who only repeats what the king wants to hear. John confronted Herod and called him out on his sin. John is a hard man who speaks clear truth. Then Jesus says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He basically says, let's be honest. You know why you've listened to John all this time. You know why you have sought John out, because you know who he is, and you know who you found. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now notice that Jesus is still using the present tense about John. Jesus does not say here, there used to be no one greater than John, but he blew it. A little bit of prison time is all it took to rattle his faith, and now John is out of my favor. That's it for John. You know, he was a strong man once, he was a tough man once, he was a great man once, but now that he is questioning me, he's no longer great. No, Jesus doesn't say that at all. Jesus is defending John in the present tense. He's defending his shaken servant. He says, there's no one greater up to this moment than John. But let me tell you something else. Now that the kingdom of heaven has come, now that all of history has moved into a new age, now that John has paved the way and I have followed, as great as John is, greater than all the forefathers, greater than all the kings, greater than all the prophets that came before, yet even the least follower in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him and everyone that has come before. That is an encouragement. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have confessed your sin and set aside all other gods to make Jesus your treasure, if you are the least in the kingdom of heaven, then as small and as insignificant as you might think you and your faith is in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says you are greater than all that came under the law and the prophets. You are greater even than the greatest, John the Baptist. So if the response of Jesus is to defend doubting John, and the least in the kingdom is greater than he, how much more will Jesus defend his saints in the church age? How much more will Jesus defend those today whose faith wavers a little like John's? We are greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. 
The response of Jesus to the doubts of John the Baptist is not to despise him, but to defend him. Doubts will come even to the greatest servants, but doubt does not discourage Jesus. It's not a matter of how strong our faith is, but how strong the one guarding our faith is. Just to make sure we're not reading too much into the character of Jesus here from this one text, let's just quickly reference a couple other instances of where Jesus encounters doubt in his followers and see what they, if they line up with this text here. We can go to Thomas, and of course, the most famous doubter, not an Old Testament era prophet as John was the last of, but a new covenant disciple of Jesus himself. Let's consider one of the twelve. After walking with Jesus for as long as three or four years and hearing the word of God directly from the word of God, witnessing miracle after miracle performed by Jesus in all probability at the instruction of Jesus, even performing miracles himself in ministry alongside Jesus, even Thomas doubted too. If it is amazing that John doubted, it may be even more amazing that Thomas doubted. But how did Jesus respond to this doubter? It says in John 20, 24 to 20 now, 29, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so again, we have a strong indication here of how Jesus treats his followers who are struggling in doubt. As we struggle in doubt and we're asking ourselves the question, how is Jesus going to respond to me in my struggle with faith? We see how Jesus responds. John doubted and Jesus defended him. Thomas doubts and Jesus encourages him says, Thomas, if you need more in order to strengthen your faith, I will meet you where you are at. I will come close to you. I will encourage your faltering faith. Don't disbelieve, believe. And then just like with the crowds he defended John to, he offers an encouragement to the believers of the new kingdom age or church age. He says, blessed are those who have not been seen and yet believe. Jesus says, there will be disciples of mine who don't see me and they will believe. Extra blessed are those disciples. He isn't talking about Thomas. He isn't talking about the 12 or any of the other followers that he had at the time, like Zacchaeus or Bartholomew, the blind man, or the woman at the well. They all saw Jesus. Jesus is encouraging us. Even as we have doubts, the response of Jesus is to meet us as he met Thomas and encourage us. We are greater than John the Baptist, and we are even more blessed than those who met Jesus personally. And so again... How much more will Jesus encourage us and defend us? So John doubted and Jesus defended him. Thomas doubted and Jesus encouraged him. But let's look at another doubter, even farther removed from Jesus than John or Thomas. Just a random man in a crowd of onlookers. 
Jesus has been along with his closest disciples on a mountaintop for some days. And as they come down from the mountain, they encounter a crowd of people talking excitedly. And a man, we never learn his name, comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do it. And so Jesus responds to this man. He says, and he answered him in Mark 9, 19 to 24, says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And in response to that cry of the father, Jesus casts out the spirit and heals the boy. And so this is not John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all time. This is not Thomas, one of the 12 Jesus called and who followed him in ministry. This is a nameless man in a crowd. He has sought out Jesus with only the faintest of hopes. If you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion. Lend a hand here. To which Jesus immediately says, Did you just say, if you can? And the man cries out as a request in a one-sentence prayer, I believe, but help my unbelief. What did the man believe? The man evidently believed that Jesus had authority over his unbelief, that Jesus could help him with his faith. He believed that Jesus was the one who could provide him the faith that he needed. And so how does Jesus respond now to this nameless man and his request for help in his doubt? Jesus grants the faith that he asked for, and the miraculous transforming work that accompanies that faith is done for the man and his son. Three men, three doubters, and the desire of Jesus is to meet them in their doubts and defend them and encourage them and respond to them. So let's just come back to Matthew and to John the Baptist for a moment. John is really in a trial of his faith. He is really being tested in his doubts over Jesus. He has put his hope in Jesus and now he is in prison. And it seems like his faith is very, very weak in this Messiah. It would be so easy to argue that he does not have the righteousness that would be his by faith or his by trust in Jesus. And yet, even though John doesn't seem to have the faith that we would think would be required, Jesus is defending him. Now, is that Jesus, the son of God, who's defending him? Or is that Jesus, the cousin and the friend of John doing that? Just trying to, you know, defend his reputation among the crowd. Well, let's look back in the Old Testament and see how God responds to his servants who stand accused of being unfit for salvation, who are accused of being impure or unrighteous or of not measuring up, maybe the way John is feeling right now. The prophet Zechariah is given a vision of Israel's high priest, the figure of their most righteous and faithful follower of God, someone who would be like John the Baptist or perhaps like one of the twelve. 
Zechariah 3, 1 to 5 describes the vision this way. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing on his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see, God is not the one to leave his children undefended. We can think that our faith is too little or that our righteousness will never be enough. And in thinking that, we would be correct. Our faith is little and our righteousness is not enough. But our salvation and our righteousness, our defense against the accuser, is not based on what we bring to the courtroom for the trial. It's based on who our attorney is. Jesus is our defender. It is exactly when we discover in ourselves our true weakness, our real unrighteousness, our very meager faith, that Jesus defends us from our accuser and covers us in his righteousness. And so you see, with John the Baptist, with Thomas, with this unnamed man in a crowd who was far from Jesus and had only the faintest hope, Jesus' response to doubters is to defend and to respond and to encourage in their cry for faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a prayer Jesus will answer. You may have heard this accuser's voice yourself recently. There's no Christian I know that hasn't heard the voice of the accuser that Zechariah describes. He says, your faith is too weak. This Christianity stuff isn't true. God isn't really going to save you. He doesn't have good things in store for you. John the Baptist heard that voice. He questioned if Jesus really was the Messiah. Thomas heard that voice. Peter heard that voice in his own way too. Yet Jesus' response was to defend and to exonerate and to encourage. Even a nameless man who barely knew Jesus by reputation, with his tiny, faltering, little match flame of faith, Jesus responds to with faith and miraculous power. The encouragement for us as believers here, as the least, and I think we would all claim to be the least in the kingdom of heaven, even the least of us, is to not be alarmed by doubt. Doubt should not terrify us. We look to Jesus for our faith, and Jesus has proven that he responds to those who look to him, even in doubt. John Bunyan, most famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a powerful autobiography while he was imprisoned for his faith. He was in prison just like John. He was in prison over a decade Grace abounding to the chief of cinders, he named his autobiography, and I can hardly recommend it to anyone struggling with doubt. It's out of copyright, it's free online, it's in Kindle and other formats. You can just go to Project Gutenberg and download it. Just Google for it, you'll find it. And in that autobiography, he recounts the many years that he struggled with doubt over his faith, over God's 
forgiveness of his sins, over his backsliding, even as a Christian, how he didn't measure up and didn't believe he could be saved or that his sins could be forgiven. At one point he writes, There was nothing now that I longed for more than to be put out of doubt. As to this thing in question, and as I was vehemently desiring to know, if there is indeed hope for me, these words came rolling into my mind. Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies to me? Quoting much of that from Psalm 77. And all the while these questions run in my mind, I thought I still this had the answer. Tis a question whether he has or no. It may be that he has not. Yea, the interrogatory seemed to me to carry in it a sure affirmation that indeed he had not, nor would so cast off, but would be favorable, that his promise does not fail, and that he had not forgotten to be gracious, nor would in anger shut up tender mercy. Something also there was upon my heart at the same time, which I cannot now call to mind, which with this text did sweeten my heart and make me conclude that his mercy might not be quite gone, nor clean gone forever. So as John Bunyan just meditated on this reality of the character of God and whether his mercy was gone forever, whether in his anger he had shut him out, whether his promises failed, whether he would be favorable no more, Bunyan understands from the word of God that God is there, Jesus is there, the spirit is there for the doubter, for those that are faltering in faith. His promises do not end. They do not fail. God has not forgotten to be gracious. He has not shut up his tender mercies in his anger. He does respond. Bunyan sought out the Lord in the midst of his doubt. He sought God. And as is the nature of our Savior, the Lord did respond to him with comfort. It is the nature of our friend Jesus not to despise or abandon those who stumble into doubt or fall prey to the voice of our accuser. Rather, it is the nature of our God to defend, to exonerate, to encourage, to respond in mighty ways to those that humbly cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2 says. Our hope is not in the strength of our faith, but in the faithfulness of him in whom we believe. You may be doubting this morning. You may be going through a period of wrestling the same way that John the Baptist did, the same way that Thomas did. You may question whether Jesus is going to respond to you and if he is willing to help, the same as that nameless man in the crowd. Every Christian, great and small, goes through doubt. But bring your doubts to Jesus. He will not reject you. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you have put on display here the life of this great, greatest prophet, John the Baptist, in the Gospel of Matthew. And that you have showed us the heart of Jesus and how he responds to those, even the greatest prophet or disciple or servant of any sort. How you respond to those who doubt and whose faith wavers. 
You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one who gives the gift. You will not turn us aside. Your mercies are new every morning, even for those who doubt. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, even as we need it most today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.